We are continuing a series here going through, uh, well, I guess part three of, of a four-part series looking at, um, based out of Acts 2.42 on the formation of, of the early church. Um, before we, we turn to uh, the word here in this time, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we need to hear you this morning. We need your voice cutting through all of the other voices. We need to be addressed by you. So help us to listen and to focus. Father, we, grant, or we pray that you would grant us your spirit in this time, that he would be at work doing his renovating, renewing work that he does, that he's so good at. We're weak people, so build us up in faith. We pray that we would have a better picture of Jesus that we would see him more clearly, that he would be more believable, that we would see him as more beautiful than when we first came this morning. Open our understandings and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been in a series from based out of Acts 2.42. This is week three of week four on what the early church devoted themselves to for its formation. Rhythms patterns, habits, even media, all that's around us, they have an inevitable influence upon us here. And all of these things contribute to our formation. It contributes to our formation personally, but also formation about who the church is. And we've seen that the, uh, the, the church in Acts is this vibrant, dynamic church, a church that really takes its mission seriously. It's a flourishing church. And what did they devote themselves to in the very earliest days of the church? What is it that formed this church? This is what it was, what we, what we read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Today we're going to be looking at that third one, the breaking of bread, or well, I'll say the breaking of the bread. We'll get to that in a moment. But eating forms us. Eating forms you. You know the phrase, you are what you eat. What that means is how, how you eat directly affects your health and your well-being. The foods that you eat, the decisions about your regular diet, that's one of the things. But it's also the habits in your eating, the intervals between when you eat, the, the size of your meals, the regularity. All of these affect, affect and contribute to your health. And eating also forms the church in the same, in the same fashion, right? What we eat, well, what's our regular diet, what we look to for nourishment, but it's also how we eat, how the church eats, the manner of our eating, what is our approach and our belief to when we come and when we feed. What we're looking at this morning is the breaking of the bread, and that is the Lord's Supper, in Acts 2.42 here, it's a specific reference to a particular bread, as opposed to regularly dining together. Now, it's something that doesn't come through in the English translations here, but I am suggesting to you that it should be, that it should be actually translated as the bread from the English Greek language. The bread. There is that definite article, the, that's there that's not translated in the English. I'm not quite sure why. But the, what is that? That word the is so important. It singles it out as a specific, 
as something particular, as something concrete. And especially so if there's a common reference that's understood. Right now, think about the difference. We had a baptism this morning. What's the difference between saying, oh yeah, we, uh, we had a baptism of a child versus saying, oh, we, we baptized the child. Right? That the is really important. Is it has a particular reference. Little Milo. Not just any child, but a specific child. We have that definite article that's there in this passage in Acts 2.42. The breaking of the bread. And it's interesting because just a few verses later in Acts 2.46, so that's four verses later, it talks about how the early church was in. They were gathering together and they were breaking bread in their homes. And those are clearly dinners of sharing fellowship around the meal table. But you know what's interesting? In there, there's no definite article with bread. That's their breaking bread in the homes. There is something different about this bread, the bread, here in Acts 2.42 than just a regular meal. There's something special that's being highlighted about this bread right here. What is that common particular referent that would have been going off in these readers' minds? What would they have understood as? The Lord's Supper. Breaking the communion bread. The bread. This is a formative practice which the early church devoted itself towards. Even just that that word devoted, and they devoted themselves, right? That suggests that it wasn't just an occasional thing they did. It suggests that they did it frequently. That they saw it as being so important, so vital to them, that they partook regularly and they partook often. See, the Lord's Supper is from the very beginning of the church, right? This was like the, the, the day after Pentecost. It doesn't get any earlier than this. Actually, it does, and that's in the upper room as Jesus instituted it, as he gave it to the, as to the disciples and saying, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. And then it was practiced by the church in the most early days preceding the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost, The apostles who were with Jesus in the upper room, Jesus passed it on to them. He led them in it. And then imagine the wonder, the awe, the exhilaration as they then, those apostles who were with Jesus, as they broke the bread, as they blessed the cup for the first time in the name of Jesus, giving it to the church. As they practiced regularly, God used it then to form them into this this beautiful, amazing, dynamic, missional church. How did the church grow? Word, as we see here, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Word, they devoted themselves to fellowship, to, to bread and cup, and to prayer. And we have this growth that's happening in Acts, not just outward. It's not just the the gospel spreading across the empire, but it's also inward of people being built up and renewed. And the means that God gives here when we think about that, word, fellowship, bread and wine, and prayer, it's amazingly simple, isn't it? But that's also part of the wonder of when God works. God uses what it seemed to be very simple means to form his church in these lasting ways. And so how did it form them? How did the Lord's Supper form them? 
Well, what we've been doing is not just looking at Acts 2.42, but another corresponding passage for us to also understand what's at work, what the dynamics of that particular practice. And so we're going to do the same thing, looking at the reality of the Lord's Supper through this lens in 1 Corinthians 10.14-22. This is going to be our main passage we're going to be out of this morning, 1 Corinthians 10.14-22. You can turn in your Bibles. I'm going to read it here for us. Pay careful attention because this is the very word of God. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what the pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. There are some strange things in this passage. We'll we'll address some of them in a bit. But it's important, though, for us to understand uh, what's happening here uh, in the Lord's Supper. But that's not just what it is here. It's not just a passage about the Lord's Supper. It's actually part of a wider argument by Paul. And the Lord's Supper is just simply an example. It's it's to, to the greater contextual issue. And so what is that context? This is important for us to understand a little bit what's going on here. As Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, in this section of the book, he's addressing issues of food related or food sacrificed to idols, of food that's been sacrificed in the temple and these meals. Is it okay for the church to participate in these sorts of meals, to, to eat, eat food that's been sacrificed uh, in, the, in the, the pagan temples? And Paul uses Israel as in the wilderness as an example. He does that in the, the paragraphs just before this here. Because Israel was, was a people, God's people, in an exclusive covenant relationship with the Lord. They all, it says, Paul says that they all drank, ate and drank from the same spiritual food from God. They were fed bread from heaven. They were given water from the rock. And Jesus says the substance of that, the substance of that food that they were given was Christ. Right, that it, what, they, what they were doing was it was a life lived by grace in the wilderness. God was providing for them. Right? God was seeing them through. And in, in, the, in, in uh, his grace, most manifest here is Jesus. It's Christ. And so they are, in a way, partaking from the substance of Jesus here. Yet they simultaneously also acted in infidelity. Because they also went after idols. They were engaging at the same time in pagan worship rituals while also receiving from God. I mean, just think about about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and they build a golden calf, right? They say, this is our God. And not only are they eating and drinking around it, but they are carousing around it. This is a serious matter to God. 
He struck them down for this. And Paul uses it as a warning to take care then when you participate with Christ and idols. And so that brings us then to our passage here, particularly the section in verses 14 through 17. Paul then brings this application to the church at Corinth as they participated in the supper. And he says here that cup that we partake of, it is a participation in Christ's blood. The bread that we break and we eat, he says, it's a participation in his body. It is partaking in Christ like Israel did, but not in shadowy ways, in ways that are more clear. The substance of Christ now was revealed from from shadowy form into reality now as Jesus takes the bread and, and the cup and he sets them apart for his purpose. Paul then says that eating then, when we eat, when the church comes together to eat, it is sharing in his body and his blood through the bread and the cup. The church comes together feeding from the one bread, feeding from Christ, of which the whole body, the church, partakes of. One Christ given to the church for its life. One Christ that the whole church participates in. And this is important for understanding the nature of the sacrament. That word, participation. Participation. What does that mean? It's related to union. It's a close relationship, participating so intimately that the two are united together. An example that we can think of is marriage. You have two lives, but they are, all, they are united together. And in that union, there's a sharing between the two. And this is, in that, in that uniting relationship is this deep sharing. There's fellowship that happens. And this is part of what the scriptures refer to as union with Christ. It's the relationship where we share in him, with him, where what is his becomes ours. And then the subsequent fellowship that we share with him as we are in union with him. And hence, that's why we have the term communion. We also call the table communion. It's a real communing with Christ. Christ in his true nature as he is risen and ascended. And he shares himself in this intimate, uniting fashion through the bread and the cup. Now, we have real participation, real communion with Christ. But how? What's that look like? How do we have this participation and communion? Is it bodily? Is it the the physical body and blood of Jesus that's there at the table? Well, if we are thinking of this idea of participation, how can you participate with Christ, with the risen Christ, if the elements are his actual body and blood? If we participate, if we unite with him, then the bread and the cup here at the table is a sign of him. It's a sign of the reality of Jesus Christ and the reality that his physical flesh and blood is not here at the table, but it's now, right now, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Well, what about separation? Do we have this idea of separation, of maybe it being a remembrance for us at the cross? Or that the, the power in, in the, the sacrament is, is, that, is, is in moving my emotions? Well, that too doesn't respect the idea of union or participation, right? Because if we participate with Christ, then there's something more than just remembering what he did for us. Rather, we have this idea of participation. 
that somehow we share in union with him and we share in union with him in a way that respects the ascended Jesus right now at the right hand of God. Jesus is on his throne. But yet also Jesus is with us too, right? How is he with us? By his spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is with us. That's how Jesus is present with us. That's the Spirit which unites us to Jesus Christ. And so we participate in Jesus by the Spirit working in and through the bread and cup. Is Jesus present as we eat the supper? Jesus is as present as we eat the supper as the Spirit is with us. Because instead of bringing him off his throne and pulling him down here at the table... The Spirit actually instead lifts our souls up in union with Him in the heavenly places. That's why we call it a sacrament. It comes from the Latin word sacramentum, mystery. Mystery. Mystery doesn't mean irrational or unknowable, does it? Mystery acknowledges limitations in our own understanding, but that doesn't mean that it's not true or real. I know how solar panels work in the sense of I know what they do. Right? I know that solar panels take, take sunlight and they, they turn it into electricity. I know what they do, but I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they convert the light from the sun into electricity. I don't have extensive knowledge. But that, that I still have a real knowledge, though, right? I may not know all the inner workings of how the light becomes, uh, how is turned from that solar panel into electricity, but I know that it does it. And my limited knowledge has room, though, for the mysterious. It is, to me, mysterious. Maybe to some of you, if you know, it's not so mysterious. I'm sure some of you probably know and will tell me afterwards, right? But here's the thing, though. I know that Christ is truly present by his Spirit as he identifies with the elements so that I participate in union with him, with the risen Christ in heaven, by that Spirit as I eat and drink. But I don't know fully how that works. But yet at the same time, I have real knowledge. We have real knowledge, even without understanding the capital S spiritual depths and the mysteries happening. And that can be hard to embrace in a modern scientific age, can it? We want to know the mechanics of everything. We want to know everything, how it works. We want firm answers on everything. And it's almost as if our modern understandings of the world have numbed us to the beauty of the mysterious, right? Especially the, the, the deep things of God. And especially when, the, when results are at the stake. Because if I don't understand, then how can I believe that this forms us? And forms us not as rituals do, but forms us in these real ways. And forming us into being a sort of church that we read about in Acts. Into an active church, not a passive church. Well, it's taken us a little bit, it's taken a little bit of time here for the, the plane to get off the runway here. But my main idea that I want us to look at this morning for us to consider is that Jesus forms us as we truly commune with him in the bread and the cup. Jesus forms us as we commune with him, as we truly commune with him in the bread and the cup. And because Jesus is given in the bread and the cup, one, I, it grounds us in union with him. Second, it seals us into an exclusive covenant. And third, it grows us into family. Because Jesus is given in the bread and the cup 
First, it grounds us in union with him. We've said that idea, participation, union. In fact, that word here for participation is the same word that we have in Acts 2.42 that talks about the fellowship. Meals create fellowship. How fitting it is that that Jesus would give us a meal that would deepen our fellowship with him. Jesus is the host who invites us. It's his meal. He's the one that instituted it. He calls and he invites us to come and to his meal. And so as we come to the table, we receive from him. And what is receiving? It is an act of faith. It's having hands that are open. Right? We open our hands and we are given him. We don't go to the table and grab. We don't go with a sense of entitlement. We come with, with empty hands, open hands and receiving in faith. Jesus is the host who invites, but here's the thing. He's also the meal. He invites us, and he's the one who gave himself for us. That fellowship with the host is actually by the meal. We have fellowship with him and in partaking with him. We need Jesus. We need the life of Jesus. We need his whole person, his whole work for us. And that's why we receive, and that's what we receive. We receive him, all of who he is, all of what he's done for us, his crucified nature, his risen nature, his righteousness, his ascended nature, his promise. Every time you are given the bread and the cup, you are receiving him in his fullness. And you're eating him in faith. You're taking that promise, putting it inside you. I mean, quite literally, the act of eating is taking something within us, right? It is, in a sense, union, right? The food that you eat, whatever it is, it becomes part of you, right? The breakfast that you ate this morning, it has become part of you. The coffee and the the snacks that you will probably partake of after, after the service here, it will become a part of you. Jesus in us, as we partake from him, with as we come with our hands extended, and open, ready to receive. And when we think about the table in this sort of way, as being formed around Jesus, the table pulls, back, pulls us back into reality. Because coming to the table forces us to reconsider ourselves that maybe I'm not as strong as I thought I was. That maybe I do need to receive. It forces us to, to think again that maybe my life really is actually only in union with Jesus. To consider again that I am, the value I have here, that, that my, my, my standing before Jesus, or my standing before God is my receiving from Jesus. It's not my attempts to impress him or the things that I do. The thing is, we're, we're forgetful people. It's so easy for us to forget who God calls us. Right? Perhaps not in name, right? We don't maybe not forget the name Christian, but it happens functionally all the time. When we forget the eternality of the world unseen all around us and how we fit into that. When we forget the new names that God has given to us, right? Instead of reverting back into our old ways and our alternate self-conceptions of who we once were or who we think that we want to be, God grounds us again. This is who you are in Jesus. See, when you eat then, It is Jesus for you in a multi-sensory way. You are wrapped up with Jesus just as surely as the bread and the cup that you're holding. 
See, I hear the word. We hear the word, but it's so often easy to forget, isn't it? But when I hold it, it hits differently. The bread and the cup pulls us back into reality. When we look at what we're holding in our hands, when we, when we taste it, we are brought back into conscious reality of who we are in Jesus. That this is who I am. This is who I belong to. And I'm taking that promise with me. Despite my sin and my shortcomings, the blood of Jesus given for me, shed for me, continues to stand. Because Jesus... Because Christ is given in the, the bread and the cup. Second, it also seals us into an exclusive covenant. Right? It seals us into an exclusive covenant. Supper, the supper here is a covenant meal. Jesus, at, at his institution, calls it the, the blood of the covenant, doesn't he? That's emphasized also here in being listed first by Paul. Usually we think about bread and then the cup. But here, Paul flips it around. He talks about the cup first and then the bread. We have in mind here first the blood of the covenant. And covenants are bonds which unite us. They are relationships that are sealed by oaths. And the supper here, the Lord's Supper, is a sign of that oath that that God has made to his people that's been sealed to us In the work of Jesus. It's God's oath sealed in Jesus, but then signified to us by the bread and the cup. That's the idea of covenant. Covenant is the basis for fellowship between God and lost humanity. God is the one who takes that step forward and makes a covenant with us. To bridge the gap to us. And then the table then is the reaffirmation of that covenant. They are the signs of the oath sealed, given to us. Who sets the table? Who provides the cup? Who provides the blood of the covenant? Who is the bread that is broken on our behalf? Jesus. It's his covenant. It's his allegiance. And the, the continued bonds and fellowship that we have with God are because of his enduring faithfulness then, despite our own unfaithfulness. And even though that covenant remains due to Jesus' faithfulness, covenants, though, also call us into fidelity and exclusivity too, right? Again, just like a marriage covenant does. The covenant God addresses us verbally through his word. And with all of the implications of us being in covenant with him, he says, I am the Lord your God. This is what I've done. You are my people. Will you act as my people? He addresses us as a covenant God verbally by the word, but he also, though, addresses us pictorially. That's what we see in the sacraments. The reality of his covenant faithfulness maintaining our relationship with him. Fellowship and being in covenant here also calls us to to live in turn with, with fidelity and looking at him and following him with an exclusivity. And that's part of Paul's greater point here later in this passage here about the demons in in verses 18 through 22. And he says, you cannot eat at the tables of both Jesus and demons. Because meals are fellowship, right? There is participation when we are partaking at the table. And it's incongruous to participate in the Lord's table and then go and to participate in a table at a pagan temple, even though... You may know that those false gods that are being sacrificed to aren't really gods. Because if the table forms an exclusive relationship with a covenant God, then anything else is idolatry. 
even if those idols don't exist. That's why Paul refers to them as demonic, demonic tables. Now we think about that, demonic tables of demons. Paul, what are you talking about here? Well, what is the demonic? Ultimately, it's whatever is opposed to God. The demons are opposed to God. Demonic activity is ultimately done in opposition to God. And so Paul's saying there's a reality behind these actions that lies in opposition to the true God. He's saying even issues of your eating, there's no neutrality. Not with rival tables, with rival bonds. You can't have both. You can't eat from the table of Christ and then go and participate in the table of a, of a pagan altar. God won't allow it. You can't say Jesus is Lord and then compete with another competing Lord, right? Beavers don't go tailgating with ducks, do they? Ducks don't go tailgating with beavers, right? They are rival fellowships. These are the sort of pagan, these sorts of pagan idols and temples may not occur where we live here in Newburgh. But the principle still remains, though, for us. Just because there may not be any pagan temples in Newburgh doesn't mean that the demonic doesn't exist. And perhaps we're not talking about about temples like religious idols. Maybe that's not what we're talking about here, but what are the other idols that tempt us into participating with them? What are the idols of our culture? I'd suggest there are idols such as materialism, of power, of status, of the quest for youthfulness. All these things here, these are the idols which tempt us into participating They are demonic because they lure us away from the covenant exclusivity with God, which is, it's opposed to him. And the table's a reminder that we don't own ourselves, that we are not autonomous people, but we belong to the eternal God, that we fellowship with the eternal God. And it's more than just mere words, but it is a relationship that is grounded in the Christ who is as real as the bread and the cup that we have in our hands. Those are what bring us back into reality. It is the spiritual food which strengthens our faith, which grounds us in him so that we can then resist the idols and return back again to the faithfulness of Jesus. And then third, because Jesus is given in the bread and the cup, the supper grows us into family. The supper grows us into family. There are both vertical dimensions and horizontal dimensions involved here at the table. There is a vertical, there is a participation and a communion with Christ in him. But there's also the horizontal as we also participate with one another. Because we eat together as the church, as one body from the one bread. The church is formed by the bread, the one bread, the bread of Christ. It derives its life from him. We all eat of the same meal. It's the same Christ who is given to us. We are communing with him. And in this time of communing with him, we're also eating all together. See that the table isn't a private affair. It is a meal of the body communing together with the body and blood of Jesus. The family of God coming to the table together here. It is a family meal. And that there are seats open for everyone who's part of the family. How do we become part of the family? By the grace of God. By Jesus who came to us. 
by just like we receive from, from, the, from the table here by faith with open hands, we come to Jesus with open hands. See, when we come, though, to the table and when we eat, what is your relationship like with the rest of the family? What's your relationship like with the family itself, with the body? Are you a part of it? Are you part of the family? Or do you have an estranged relationship with the family? It's part of what it means to examine the body in 1 Corinthians 11, that when Paul writes there about, about when you come to the table, examine the body, discern the body. And it's telling us this, that when we come to the table, it calls us to re-examine ourselves every time in light of the cross. Am I coming? Do I, do I come knowing my need? And do I come seeing there, Jesus, given for us, and that I need Jesus, and that I need to trust in him, and this is me eating in faith. This is where, this table is where our differences come down, because we are bound by the blood. We're bound by the blood of the covenant. And meals are glad times when the families get together, right? It's a celebration of the commonality and the fellowship that we have. And the commonality of the family of God isn't heritage. It's not shared experience. It is grace. It is a family that's brought together by God's grace and is bound with one another in love. And a family like this, with these sorts of dynamics, they eat with joy. It's not a somber meal that we come to. It's a feast. It's a table of, of celebration and joy and feasting because we are celebrating our union together as the family in Christ as new people who are formed by him. The table isn't a time for us to have dour self-reflection. It is a, a family reunion at the table. And like family reunions, though, some might be absent. We know that some may have passed on. Some as part of the family may not be present we're still united with them. And what makes this better is that this is a meal of anticipation when we are all gathered. When all the families brought together here. When all the family brought together of great-grandparents, of great-great-grandparents, of aunts and uncles, of cousins and relatives who we may never have even met yet. But this table reminds us that someday we will all be sitting around the table with them. We'll be sitting around the table with Jesus, who is the host, our host present in his real flesh and blood, in his physical body, sitting at that table, at the everlasting table with us. And we have an eternity of feasting with him. Do you see how this creates a vibrant church? Do you see how this forms a beautiful church? A church that eats frequently and as a regular diet, as part of it, or as a, as a, as a, a regular part of its life here, puts Jesus at the center. Jesus in all his person. Jesus in all of his work. It's a church that is formed by Jesus week after week as we come to the table. It's a church also that celebrates being formed by Jesus. It's, it's joyful because every week here's a feast that's set out for us and we get to celebrate every worship service. We have a feast and we get to celebrate that Jesus is crucified, that he has risen, that he has ascended for sinners and that Jesus belongs to us and we to him and in fact that we are also in him. 
And we eat over and over because it's something that we don't grow tired of. It's not, we don't grow tired of it if we understand the realities of what's happening at this table. We are a people whose identity in the world is formed by a feast that's prepared for us weekly. We come to the table and we see Christ for us. We see his covenant signs given to us. And it roots us again what's true. Roots us in what's true. That I recognize again who I am because I see the signs and seals of Christ in me and Christ for me. And it pulls us back into reality. To be renewed by Jesus as he claims us as his own again. Brothers and sisters, let's hear the invitation of Jesus. Let's come to the table this morning joyfully and eat in faith as we are fed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. God, how wonderful and beautiful this mystery is. We may not understand all the dynamics, but we do understand this basic thing that Jesus has given for us. And Jesus unites us with himself in this time, in this meal. Spirit, we pray that as we prepare ourselves to come, that we would be doing so joyfully, that, we would be, that you would be with us here in this time, <clears throat> uniting us and lifting us up with Jesus. Continue to make this a beautiful part that we, of our service that we long to and look for every week and pull us back into reality and remind us about who we are in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.